Hey, welcome into the Coach Bo Knows Podcast on the Studio Soapbox Network. I'm Coach Bo, Brian O'Connor. We're recorded live at the O'Connor Advisor Group Studios. You can check out all things O'Connor Advisor Group at oagks.com. You can interact with the show on Twitter and Instagram at Coach Bo Knows Show is our handle. Check out the Facebook page. Just search for Coach Bo Knows Show. And you can email us at CoachBonosShow at gmail.com. This is episode 42. And today here for Monday's pod, we are just going to, uh, I'm just going to do a little Coach Bo rants. I talk about a few subjects going around and then tell a little story about going to an AEW event on uh, Wednesday this past week. Uh, first, want to say apologies up front. My allergies are acting up and I'm a little nasally today. So if it comes off that way, I apologize and I'm sorry. But I want to hit a few things and uh, get in and out today. So, hey, first thing I want to talk about on the point five pod, Ellen and I spoke about the NBA Finals, probably the biggest thing going in sports right now, and um, Game 4. So uh, Warriors, after a Herculean effort from Steph Curry, 43 points, dominated, especially the second half of that game. Um, the, the, the Warriors... Get back into the series. It's a 2-2 series where it looked like, and I was pretty blunt about this on, on the podcast Friday, I thought this was a must-win for the Warriors. And I said if the Warriors lost, they were cooked. They weren't coming back from 3-1, I didn't think. Um, but now it's a 2-2 series. you got a best of three. Uh, Steph Curry played uh, the best I've seen him play in a couple of years. I mean, 43 points, just had a biggest – a Herculean effort all around the court. Uh, a lot of folks are talking about Draymond Green and how poorly he's been playing. He did have nine rebounds and eight assists in that game, but scored no points. Um, his It was kind of a joke. I was watching the game and noticed how the Celtics disrespect, I should say disrespect, they just, they don't respect anything offensively from Draymond Green. Uh, when Draymond Green has the ball in the half court, you can watch the Celtics defenders. They'll back off of him by 8 to 10 feet and basically dare Draymond Green to do anything. Um, Draymond Green did get a few re- uh, big rebounds in the second half. Um, a lot of a couple of his assists that he had early in the game were uh, it's because he's having to pass the ball on every single possession. Uh, he's just been awful. In the, in the scoring phase of the game. And I think that the Celtic crowd in game three really got in his head. And, uh, you know, they were chanting, I don't, I don't really approve of this, but, you know, chanting, fuck Draymond Green. I think that got to Draymond Green. Like the Celtics fans who are under his skin. Um, I hope for, for Draymond's sake, they better win game five because if you go back to Boston for game six and the Celtics can eliminate you in game six, then Draymond's not going to be an offensive uh, help at all. So uh, I- I'm still rooting for the Celtics. I think the Celtics can win this. I think it's important for the Celtics to take game five and game six. I don't think you want to have game seven in San Francisco Seth Curry at home, Steph Curry at home, um, and everything that he's going to do, he's going to shoot the lights out, he's going to shoot a million times, and he's going to get every call. You know he's gonna, it's going to happen. It just happens every time. Uh, but I tip, tip of the hat, it's game four. Um, 
The other piece to that is, I mentioned this in passing on the Point Five pod on Friday, Steve Kerr, as the head coach of the Warriors, has won a road game in every series. That is an underrated statistic right there. And it just, I think it goes to show game four was so pivotal for the Warriors to win. And they came back, they won that game. The Celtics played better in the third quarter than they had all the series, but but the fourth quarter where the Celtics had dominated, the Warriors took it to them. And a lot of that based on just Steph Curry kind of wheeling the team in from there. Uh, but the Celtics settled for a lot of three-pointers that they weren't making and just couldn't put themselves in a spot to win. Uh, so now you're in a best of three. Games five, six, and seven. Game five will be Monday night. So when you hear this on Monday, it'll be tonight when you hear this. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. I think the Warriors are going to be uh, the favorite, and I think that it's going to be hard to beat the Warriors two out of three for the Celtics. I um, I wanted to get a couple other things. One was a baseball take, and this was something that I think is a little unusual. Um, I don't know if you saw uh, the Los Angeles Angels uh, fired manager Joe Madden earlier in the week last week. Um, after a 14-game lose, they had lost 13 at the time. Uh, Joe Madden was fired by the Angels. And um, they named Phil Nevin, the bench coach, as the interim manager. Uh, since then, they lost the next game, went to 14. They end up winning that after that. And they won, I don't know how they've played here on Sunday night as I record this. They're actually losing that game. But they're going to lose two out of three over the weekend. Um, but a team that's got, you know, high expectations when you have, you know, the best player in baseball in Mike Trout and you have Shohei Otani who you could even argue might be the first or second best player in baseball um, in, the, in the way he can pitch and hit. When you've got those, those are heavy expectations. And it was quick to the fire Madden this early in the season, a guy who's pretty well respected and been everywhere. He's been successful everywhere he's been. I mean, he took the Cubs to the World Series and won. He was successful in Tampa. And now in L.A., after a season in about 30, 40 games, he's um, fired by the Angels. But the other piece to this, and it's not just a Joe Madden thing, over the weekend, the Chicago White Sox dropped a few games, and they've been uh, really in a bad spot. Right now they are sitting uh, third in the American League Central. This is a team that a lot of people picked to not just win the division, but to win the World Series. Um, and, and Tony La Russa is the manager of the White Sox. He was hired last season. Um, and then given a lot of tools this year, and the White Sox spent a little bit of money. And now they're four games under 500. And being four games under 500 over the weekend, a number of, um, number of fans got a chant going, fire Tony. And we're seeing that now fans are calling for the firing of Tony La Rosa. This is a Hall of Fame manager who's been great everywhere he's been. You may say he's a little out of touch, and he had a situation this past week with um, an intentional walk on a 1-2 count I, I don't, didn't agree with. And, you know, his story, it was a historically bad situation. Uh, but what we see is 
my question is, has sabermetrics so taken over the game of baseball that now the managers are almost just a, just a, just a, just a signal caller? It's not, like there's no um, there's no intuition in the game anymore. And we look, I mean, Joe Madden and Tony LaRusso are two of the greats. I mean, Tony LaRusso is a Hall of Famer. Joe Madden, I think, will be at some point. Um, we are seeing Dusty Baker, who's had some success with the Astros, and he's doing great there. But I, I wonder if the sabermetrics has taken over so much that the managerial position in the dugout isn't important anymore. That they've already worked the numbers out, and this is what our best situations are on this given situation. And so, is it best to just have someone with the book or with the laptop? And it says, well, the numbers say this. This is what we're going to do. Um, I wonder, and I just, I hope that it's not just all going to be that way, but I've seen two greats, you know, Joe Madden and now Tony LaRusse is in trouble. Seeing that made me think that. So I was uh, curious on this. Hey, I want to take a second and uh, let you know, hey, one of the reasons we do this podcast every Monday and Friday is to help with, you know, publicizing my business and what I do as a financial advisor. So if you have financial issues, if you're thinking about, hey, I need to start planning for retirement, kids' education, things like life insurance, or if you're a sole, if you're an owner of a business, we want to talk to you. We want to be your partner. So give us a shout. If you're just looking for, you know, ideas, if you're a young person, you're in your 20s, your 30s, and you're thinking, God, I need to get started on some ideas, go to oagks.com. That's our website. It's oconneradvisorygroup.com as well. Oagks.com is the easiest way to get there. And there's a lot of helpful articles and pieces that I've archived in there for people. And I would, if you would take a moment, if you want to chat with somebody, no obligation, click on the contact us button. Shoot me a message. That message is going to come directly to my inbox. So you'll get me, Coach Bo, Brian O'Connor, giving you a call back completely or emailing you, whatever your method of preferred uh, contact is. And we'll just have a chat. And no obligation. If you've got something you have questions on financially, give us a call. Let us help you out. Again, that's OAGKS.com. A couple of last things I want to jump in here and talk about. Um, I've, we were talking on the point five, Ellen and I, and one of the ideas was she would mention there was some news the Baltimore Orioles might be for sale. Um, I've been doing a little research on this, trying to find out what's going on. It turns out that, um, long story short, the two brothers that are currently in control of the Orioles are fighting. Go figure, siblings fighting. Um, to give you an idea, Peter Angelos is the owner of the Baltimore Orioles. He bought the Baltimore Orioles back in 1993. Uh, he paid $175 million for the team at the time. At the time, it was the biggest amount ever paid for a baseball team. Um, he has since built that team up. The value of that team currently, according to Forbes, is $1.75 billion. However, the Baltimore Orioles, according to Forbes, were the only team from 2021 to 2022 that actually lost value. Now, Peter Angelos is 90, he's 92 years old. She turns 93 
uh, in July. Unfortunately, he's had some health issues. He has set up a trust, and as part of his trust, his two kids, Lewis, they call him Lou, and John, are the controlling partners of the Baltimore Orioles. Well, it seems the story goes, is about a year ago, Lou put a group together to get to look at selling the Baltimore Orioles. Um, it looks like what had happened was Lou said, hey, you know, for our dad, for everything else, let's just sell this team. And he put a group together to find out there was interest in sell, in buying the somebody else buying the Orioles. Um, John, the brother, he uh, is currently now running the team day to day and trying to take uh, control of the team. Lewis is the one suing John in court now. John is the one who is now running the team, and he looks like he's from Nashville, or uh, currently lives in Nashville. And I'm wondering, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm heads up here on this one, I think that he's intending to move this team to Tennessee. Um, it looks like they could be, we have one brother that wants to sell the team, we have one brother that wants to keep the team and move it to Nashville. Now, why is that important? Well, Nashville currently has a group, a collective, if you will, who wants to purchase a Major League Baseball team. Uh, they've got Dave Stewart, the former A's pitcher, is kind of the baseball head of it, and he's been in the front office for other teams in the past. They've got a group of folks. There's a very rich area in Nashville, and they really want a baseball team. They've got the money. There's been talk of expansion. There's been talk of the Tampa Bay Rays moving there. The Baltimore Orioles moving there would be you know, a new idea, but also it wouldn't really mess up any of the divisions. They could still be in the American League East just moving from Baltimore to Nashville. It's kind of a short move. Um, it looks like we're going to have a, a legal fight now where maybe John's thinking, hey, I can move this team to Nashville. It'll be worth more. And he can either sell it or run the team there, knowing that there's another group that could you know, buy in for maybe a portion of the team. Um, I would look for some sort of you know, court battle, of course, for a while. And then I think what we'll see is probably some kind of purchase, that group getting together with John Angelos, maybe buying the you know the other half from Lou Angelos out, if the Peter Angelos Trust would approve that. Um, I think it takes both brothers to make that decision. So some kind of lawsuit settlement there would be interesting. But it would be interesting to see what happens in the coming, this will take a couple of years, I would imagine, but to see if there's more talk of the Angels moving, the Angels being sold, would another buyer come in and offer more money? You know, those kind of things. And there'll be a huge legal battle on this, I'm sure. So uh, just an interesting story that I saw and thought, hmm, that's interesting. When Ellen and I were talking on the point five, and she mentioned uh, the story about the Orioles possibly being for sale. The last kind of story I just saw out here it goes to what we talked about with NIL. So I want to talk about this. Um, I hope you enjoyed our interview with John Seaton last Monday. Uh, and then, you know, we'll have a couple more interviews coming. I've got Pat Curran, who is an agent. Uh, he'll be on in early July. We're working on a couple of coaches. Right now, coaches are not doing a lot of interviews about NIL because a lot of schools are trying to figure out what they can and cannot do. Um, but what I have found is, I found an article this week, Duke Basketball um, 
just hired um, John Shire, the new Duke basketball coach, hired what they're calling a general manager. This general manager, her name is Rachel Baker, and she's being brought in to oversee uh, a newly created role duties to include overseeing name, image, and likeness opportunity for Duke Blue Devil players. This is for the basketball program. So we have an assistant coach coming in. Now, Rachel Baker brings with her some expertise. Uh, she has worked for Nike. She worked with Kevin Durant specifically on his brand and strategic initiatives between the NBA and Nike. Uh, she has worked on the task force for rebranding the WNBA. So she's got a lot of experience in basketball and then a lot of experience with Nike specifically. So a lot to look at and unpackage here. First off, hiring a so-called general manager for a big-time program, I mean, this is a kind of a differentiator. If you're recruiting, you have someone who, this, so this person, this coach is here to help you find NIL deals. I mean, Duke basketball can get that. Maybe some like, something like Kansas basketball can do that. In football, we're going to see these sort of hires. I think there's already been a couple of them, but places like Alabama and Texas and Georgia, they're going to have these. But what happens to the competitive balance when you look at Kansas State, Iowa State, um, you know, Washington, Washington State, you know, places where they may not have the overall budget that some of these other bigger time, especially the football schools. I think it's just another leg to the NCAA not being able to do anything about NIL. And not just, I think it's the death of the NCAA at the football and men's basketball levels. I think we'll see a point where that's gonna, you're going to see a, a big shift. And we'll get more into that as we go through. I'm really going to cover that as we go through all the NIL stuff. But other things I'm seeing on this, I mean, you see a, a team hires a general manager um, just for NIL. So I was talking to my neighbor yesterday, and he's an older gentleman and, and, a, and a local fan here in Kansas. He's a, you know, he's a Kansas fan. He's a Kansas State fan, more of a Kansas State fan. And he and I were talking, and he's he's always hyped up for his team. And, you know, we're neighbors. We're chit-chatting about sports like men do. And he says, I... He's, it's ruining sports. And I see, talking about NIL, and I see where a contingent of people, especially older people, are trying to hold on to that. I do. I sympathize with that in a way because they think that college sports is a um, the last bastion of non-business, of, the, of sports not being a business. And I get that. And... You want your local team to be competitive with maybe the national powerhouse. You know, if you're a if you're a Kansas State fan, if you're a TCU fan, or you know, if you're a a, a fan of a team like Virginia or UConn, I mean, you want your team to be competitive at the highest level. But now with the NIL rules and what some teams are going to do, whether it be at the football level or the basketball level. We're going to see a, 
a move where there is going to be the hierarchy. There's going to be the, ha- the there's already the haves and have-nots. It's going to get even more elite. We're going to see the elite programs stay elite. And, and then we're going to see the next group down being the haves and then the have-nots to be the bottom. And those will be certain programs and it's going to be more difficult to move up. I think we're in a fascinating time in college sports, uh, especially in the bigger sports like football, men's basketball. Even women's basketball may see this as well. Um, I've, I've predicted you may see that move up with men's college basketball as well. And, and there'll be some changes. And, and There will always be lawyers. There's going to be lawsuits. We talked about collectives already and some of the other things that are going on out there. But this is going to be some interesting times of what happens with sports, college sports, and collegiate sports moving forward. And I think it's just the Duke basketball is just another example of something that's out there. And, you know, it's almost the Pandora's box is now open. Now it's, we're going to see what the consequences are. And I don't know this is a consequence more than it's definitely an effect. And something that's now something we can do, teams can do. It's going to become interesting to see how these things go. Last thing I'm going to touch on is we had an interesting week at the O'Connor house. So first off, I want to shout out my son. You've heard me talk about him on here before, Peyton O'Connor, P-Money as we call him, uh, the local legend. Uh, P-Money just had his birthday here on Saturday. He's 20 years old. I cannot believe, first off, that I have a 20-year-old son. I realized... I think this week, more than ever, I realized personally how much older I'm getting. Um, I've been a little under the weather for really a couple, a few weeks now. It's just been kind of allergies and some other stuff. And, you know, I've talked on, you've probably seen my TikTok and, or my TikTok, my Instagram, where I've talked about some changes I'm making in my life and um, worrying and talking about some of the mental health stuff. We talked about it on the podcast as well. This past week, I kind of had a moment. I looked in the mirror, and I went, wow, you are getting old. I had grown my hair out. If you know me, you know I get my hair cut every three weeks. I like my stuff short and easy to maintain, and I've done that all my life. It had been about a month and a half, almost two months since I got a haircut. My hair was longer, and God damn, was it gray. And then I had a couple, I had a particular night where I didn't sleep well this past week because of my allergies. And I woke up. And I go look in the mirror and I went, oh my God, you look horrible. You look old. My hair's grown out, it's gray, I'm getting gray. You know, we're all in our late 40s, it happens. It's the nature of, nature of being, if you will. Um, but I'm not too worried about it. But my son turned 20. So you got to do something big for your kid. You know, your birthday comes around, we're doing some stuff. And one of the items is I'm taking him later this month to Chicago We'll be doing his debut on the podcast. We'll be doing a review of the AEW uh, pay-per-view, The Forbidden Door. We're actually going to see it live in Chicago. That'll be in two weeks. But before then, AEW did their Rampage, not the Rampage, oh yeah, it was Rampage, uh, the uh, Dynamite show here in Kansas City on Wednesday. So I've never been or attended an AEW event. So they had, uh, they had a smaller arena, the one in Independence, Missouri. Nice little arena. That's Cable Dama Arena over there. Um, nice arena. I got a couple of tickets. Son and I are going to go. You know, a couple of days before his birthday. It'd be a cool experience, father-son. 
So we get there watching the matches, and it's this is a long show. It's like six. It's six o'clock. You get there, and they do some. I mean, they used to call them dark matches back in the day, but they're going to show these matches on YouTube, and they're all in the business. They're, they're called squash matches. These is where one person is the the name, one person's the non-name. They're usually a local person, and they get the win. The person who's the the name, just to kind of see them wrestle that kind of thing. So we watched, there's probably six, maybe seven of those matches. I think it was six of those matches. I could be wrong. That was how anonymous the matches were, actually. Then we they start Dynamite. And uh, right before they start Dynamite, Tony Khan, the owner of AEW, comes out. If you listen to this pod, you know, me and Mr. Tony need to have a chat. I tried to have a chat with him while I was there. He wasn't able to see me. He was running the show. But uh, Tony Khan comes out, you know, Hypes up the crowd a little bit. You know, everybody there is, you know, AEW people. So they're all having a good time watching this stuff. And then the, the pyro goes off and the, the show starts. And it's not a bad show. It wasn't a bad show. Um, two things in the show itself. One, it's a lot easier to watch AEW wrestling when you don't have to hear Excalibur, in the announcer. Uh, he's just awful. But uh, we had a great time. And enjoyed it, and uh, not all the matches were great. There was some, there was some stuff there that uh, I didn't particularly like. It didn't my thing, but you know, there's some people that like some of that stuff, and the people that like that stuff, that's the kind of stuff they like. So uh, that, that's you know, we had a great event. Now the the two hours from seven to nine, that's the live show. It's live on TBS. So they have six matches. Then they have this two hour show. And the funniest part, we're sitting opposite of the camera, so you can probably see us if we if you were looking hard in the crowd. Um, but we could see on our side the, the camera, and you know the red light means it's on, and if it's not red light, then it's not on. But then next to it, they actually had a clock. They had a big screen with a clock on it. Now, I've been to a number of WWE events, and I know that they use the IEPs, the, you know, the things to talk to the... The backstage talks to the referee who can help with timing because you got to get matches in and out. And AEW, because there's so many young people in that organization and they've never been on TV before, they have a clock. And you can see the clock plain as day in the arena. It's right next to the camera. So you know if you've got six minutes, you've got six minutes. It's funny that I saw that and started laughing because it's, it goes to show that there's a lot of inexperience. Usually in a wrestling match, you wouldn't want to give that away. You wouldn't want them to know that it's only a certain amount of time. Um, and it's just it's just funny to me how that worked. At least it wasn't a countdown timer. That would have been beyond crazy. Um, but yeah, I just thought it was kind of funny to see that. It was interesting to see it as we watched the last match, knowing they're going up against nine. 9 o'clock local, 10 o'clock Eastern. And the, the, the time is on Eastern time, by the way, even in the Central time zone. So um, you know, the last match is happening. And I was looking at the clock, and I go, okay, well, it's 9.59 in 30 seconds. This thing's got to end in 30 seconds. Just funny stuff. Uh, so that show ends at 9 o'clock. They change the ring mat, the curtain around the ring, the signage by where the announcers sit so they can then tape the Rampage show, the Friday night show. And uh, 
it took them about 15 to 20 minutes to get that done, to get it set up, and then they start the, the next show. Um, I actually thought the Rampage show was better than Dynamite, uh, especially when they had the FTR match at the very end. Um, those are my guys. I like the FTR. So, uh, But that was a good match and uh, kind of a, a big deal bringing in the guys from Japan and getting what they're starting for the Forbidden Door pay-per-view. But I digress. I uh, We were there till about 10.45, a little before 11. So I'd heard some people who had said they were at some of these events till midnight. I guess that's on the East Coast. So we had experienced it was almost 11 locally, which isn't terrible. But that's a long time. I mean, it's four and a half, five hours. You know, the pay-per-view they just had was four and a half hours. AEW's got to do something about that because you can't hold people's interest for four hours. I mean, as a crowd, the crowd definitely lost interest. People were going home as soon as Dynamite was over. Um, it it probably makes it look a little different. Of course, on TV, you can pipe in crowd noise. WWE does it all the time. Um, so I'm going to imagine they do that. But it that's what wears me out. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to get into here in a couple of weeks when I go to this uh, pay-per-view in person. I sure hope it's not four hours. But... Uh, Hope, hope Kiddo had a great time. We did. We, we had a great father-son time doing this, and AEW was fun to be at for their live show. Um, it was interesting. It was interesting. interesting experience. Uh, it was kind of my first show back since COVID that I had uh, been to, I think. Yeah. So, anyway, um, just wanted to jump in there with a few things, a few thoughts here. I want to keep this around 30 minutes today, so I'm going to jump up out of here. I want to say thank you to Tyler Jones, everybody at Studio Soapbox, for all you do behind the scenes. Uh, Ellen will be back on with me on Friday. We'll be doing the .5 pod. Over the next couple of weeks, we will have um, Pat Karen interview will be here at the end of the month, maybe the 1st of July. I'm still working on the date on that. I am working on a couple other uh, leads on trying to get coaches in here to talk about NIL. But in the meantime, we've got a couple other things coming up. Uh, including our first draft, stealing a little line from the uh, little thing from the Jones report. We'll be uh, doing a draft, a Star Wars draft here. Uh, we'll be bringing on some friends and we'll be chit chatting and having some fun with that. Uh, then we'll have um, in two weeks, which will be the uh, 27th, we'll be doing the podcast. We'll do it the night before live in Chicago. P Money and I doing a breakdown of New Japan. And AEW Forbidden Door. So if you're if you're one of those folks who likes the wrestling stuff and kind of likes my takes on wrestling, that'll be interesting, and I'll have some takes for sure on that. Um, but hey, I just want to say thank you again for listening. Um, don't forget to rate us and review us. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, we appreciate every five star rating. It helps us so much. So I really do appreciate it. So until Friday, I'm Coach Bo Brian O'Connor. Have a great week. Remember your time token, your non-refundable. Take care, everybody.